Welcome back to Christian Outdoors Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Rogers, and this is the podcast where we discuss all things outdoors and how we can enjoy God every day. And welcome back to Christian Outdoors Podcast. Again, I'm your host, Pete Rogers, and this is episode number 81. Before we get into today's podcast, I want to once again remind you about my book, Do You Enjoy God? 12 Steps to Enjoying God Every Day is available on Amazon. It's also available at ChristianOutdoors.org. The book is really gaining traction, getting a lot of good positive feedback from it, and I think that you can really benefit from it, either in your small group, your Sunday school class, or even just yourself. Do you enjoy God? 12 Steps to Enjoying God Every Day. We discuss all the things necessary so that you can not just acknowledge God, appreciate God, love God, and worship God, but where you can enjoy God on a deeply intimate, personal level every single day. Get your copy again at ChristianOutdoors.org or at Amazon.com. If you're not following us on Instagram and Facebook, please do. We're at Christian Outdoors Podcast. You can find us on both of those platforms there. But would love to have you start following us and keeping up with everything that's going on. Um, we're also, excuse me, we're also in the process of totally revamping our website, so it'll be a little bit easier to to navigate through. If you haven't been to ChristianOutdoors.org, we encourage you to do that. We have, uh, there's, all my books are available there. All of the podcast episodes are available there. So if you're looking to catch up on podcasts, maybe you just discovered us and you want to go back into the archives and find our episodes, you can do that. All the episodes are on ChristianOutdoors.org. <clears throat> We'd love to have you go there and to start listening to all the all the episodes. We've had some great episodes so far in the year and a half that we've been doing this. And I'm really excited about how, what the future holds as well. So, But, but we also have some merchandise there where we have some caps and decals and, and some other things that are coming. But uh, the books are available there and, and also the, the merchandise is available. And you can learn more about me and about what our mission is. You can also... Donate to the mission to the ministry there. This is a listener-supported podcast, and so your help and your encouragement would be great. If you can't financially contribute to Christian Outdoors, and we would love for you to continue to keep us in your prayers, because that is really important to keeping this ministry alive, is knowing that you're praying for us and supporting us throughout this process. So if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that I've had Reverend Chris Taylor on the show the last two weeks. He's not going to be able to join me this week, so I'm flying solo. But we're going to continue with this theme that I started a couple of weeks ago when I said we're looking at things from a Christian perspective. And what we're going to do here is is we've, we've looked at two topics the last two weeks. One was uh, the Second Amendment. What does the Bible say about the Second Amendment? What, how does the Bible support it? Does it support it? And all those, that's episode 79. I encourage you to go back and listen to that. It's a really good conversation I had with Reverend Chris Taylor and how we look at what does the Bible say about that and got some perspectives on it. And then this last week, episode 80, we d- dove into capital punishment from a biblical perspective. What does the Bible say about capital punishment? Again, that's episode 80 if you want to go back and listen to that. you know. And we asked these three questions. Does the Bible mandate capital punishment? Does it permit capital punishment? Or does it prohibit capital punishment? And we had a great discussion with, with Chris as we talked about that and uh, came to some conclusions and some um, some minds were changed and some opinions were changed through that discussion. And so today I'm going to continue with that theme and I'm going to look at one other subject that is um, what I think relevant, what I think is important, and what I think is probably one of the most misunderstood or misdiagnosed, if you will, 
uh, topics in the church today, and that is the topic of divorce. So hang on here just a minute. We're going to hear a word from our sponsor, CVA, and right after that, I'm going to jump into the topic of divorce in the church and how does the Christian feel about it and how should the Christian respond to it. So hang on, and we'll get to that discussion in just a minute. This portion of the podcast is being brought to you by the CVA Acura V2 LR, which is the long-range version. These models provide a level of accuracy performance that is unequaled in any brake-action muzzleloaders on the market today. This degree of precision is attained because the Acura V2 LR rifles, while they're equipped with 30-inch premium custom-quality Vergara barrels, these barrels have quickly become recognized as the most accurate production muzzleloader barrels in the world today, and they're available in either a Cerakote nitride stainless steel or a standard stainless steel version. The Acura V2 LR includes CVA's quick-release breech plug, which you can remove with just your fingers, and the stocks and four stocks are upgraded with a soft-touch coating and rubber grip panels, making them comfortable and secure even in the foulest weather. These ergonomically designed stocks are fully ambidextrous, and one screw disassembly makes the gun easy to take apart for cleaning and for travel. If you want to learn more about the CVA Acura V2 long-range version, go to cva.com to learn more. So let's jump right into this week's episode of The Bible and Divorce. What does the Bible say about divorce? What does the church say about divorce? How should Christians feel about divorce and its impacts on society and its impacts on the people involved, the family unit and everything. How should we really look at that from a Christian perspective? And it's a really a tough subject because, you know, if we're honest with each other in today's world, roughly 50% of all marriages end in divorce. Now, there's a lot of factors into that, and we could really spend many, many episodes diving into the reasons people get divorced and some of the reasons that, that uh, marriages fail, Then there's a lot to it. Um, but we don't want to get into that today. We just really want to look at what does the Bible say about divorce and what does it mean for divorced people in the church? And how does the church respond to its members that are divorced? And and how does the church respond to families that are impacted? What kind of ministries can the church have? And and what about the leadership? How does the how is the leadership affected by divorce in today's world? What does the church say about leaders that are divorced? We're going to dive into all that. And uh, it's a little bit touchy subject. It's a little bit personal, which we'll get into in a little bit later. But I think it's very important in today's society when we realize that, again, that roughly 50% of all people uh, or all marriages end in divorce. So what that means to the church, if you will, and, I, and just to keep it simple, just to keep it simple, let's, let's use a church of, say, uh, 200 people, all right? Which, if you break that down by family units, you're looking at about 30 to 40 families. And if 50% of the marriages fail, then half of your congregation has been impacted by divorce directly or indirectly. They themselves have been divorced and maybe remarried. Their children have either been divorced, remarried. Their parents, maybe all of them, have been impacted by this, by this event. And, and so how does the church respond to that? How do pastors respond to that? How does the ministry respond to the fact that it is such a prevalent part of our society? And what does the Bible say about it? Well, unfortunately, the Bible is very clear, and yet it's unclear at the same time. Um, the, in the New Testament, 
let's look at a couple of things. First, um, we're going to look at what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably some of the most famous parts of it. In Matthew 5, when Jesus is sharing in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 31, he says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, these two verses have been used to teach or comfort or to condemn so many people across the church. If I marry a woman who has been divorced, I'm committing adultery. But let me ask you this. Look at verse 32 again and look at it carefully. Okay? Look at it carefully. Verse 32, it says, if anyone marries a woman... Hold on, let me read it right here. But I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality. So is Jesus putting a clause, an exception clause, in his comment here? And if he is, what does that mean? Does that mean that if my wife cheats on me or if my husband cheats on me, then I can get divorced and it not be considered a sin and I won't be committing adultery if I remarry? Or I won't be committing adultery if I marry a woman who is divorced because her husband cheated on her. You see what I'm saying? It gets the water gets muddy really fast because Jesus here in Matthew 5, and if you look at the synoptic gospels in Mark and Luke, he says virtually exactly the same thing, except for sexual immorality. So that causes a lot of issues right there. Now, I have not been able in my research to find how many divorces end, end because somebody cheated or because there was adultery involved, you know, that one of the spouses went out and had sexual relations with somebody other than their spouse. Um, so those numbers are really hard to find because, honestly, there's really no way to quantify it or to qualify it, rather, to say that this is exactly what happened. I guess you can go and dig through all the, all the public record court documents and find out what the grounds for divorce was. That's still going to be a skewed number because, I mean, I personally know many people who are divorced because their spouse cheated on them, but to save the family the embarrassment, they did not file divorce on those grounds. They filed on the grounds of irreconcilable differences or something else. So it's not a real accurate reflection if you were even to go and find that number. But is, is Jesus here putting an exception clause? And if so, why is this the only one? Or is this the only one? So if a man, let's read it again, okay? I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now notice, I'm going to pause right there. Notice Jesus says that if, that if anyone divorces his wife, he, he is not given an opportunity here for women to offer a certificate of divorce. Remember, these were Jewish people following Jewish law, and only men could divorce women. Women could not divorce men back in those days. Okay? There is no exception to that in the Scripture. There is no verse that I can find, and I've spent a lot of time researching this, so if I, if I miss something, please email me at pete@christnoutdoors.org and let me know where I missed it, and I'll be glad to come in and, and, and correct myself in that. But I cannot find any example in Scripture that allows for a woman to divorce her husband. 
only examples of where husbands are, can divorce their wives. And so that creates a huge ethical dilemma in the Christian community right there. A huge, which I'm going to get into and share some stories in a little bit about that. But I find that very interesting. But also, here Jesus offers an exception clause. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, comma, except for sexual immorality, comma, makes her a victim of, of adultery. So let's take out the exception and read it that way. If anyone divorces his wife, makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery, except for sexual immorality. So it seems like, and I think I can make a pretty good argument on this. I think I'm doing it now, but it seems a pretty good argument to say that if your spouse cheats on you or has relations outside of your marriage or is sexual immorality or another version says except for adultery, okay, if your spouse commits adultery and has relations outside of your marriage with someone other than you, then you can get a divorce and it not be considered the same sin otherwise. That's what it seems to be saying to me. Okay? That Jesus is saying, except for sexual immorality, except for adultery. Anyone committed, anyone who has a divorce except for adultery causes his wife to commit adultery and, and anyone who marries her commits adultery as well. So let's carry it to that degree. If you marry a woman, okay, we're going to go this both ways. So when I say I'm, you know, I'm a man, so I'm approaching it from a man's perspective, but this actually goes both ways in my mind. Okay, so if you're a female listening to this, this applies in both directions, what I'm saying here. So if I marry a woman who has been divorced, but her husband cheated on her, and that's why she got divorced, then according to what this says, I'm not committing adultery because she got divorced for a justified reason. Is Jesus justifying divorce for certain reasons? We're going to get into some more reasons a little bit later. But here in, in, in uh, 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 Matthew 5, and he actually repeats this in Matthew 19, when he says, again, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality or except for adultery and marries another woman commits adultery. So I can divorce my wife for adultery, and when I remarry, I'm not committing adultery. Is exactly what it sounds like to me he's saying here. Okay, so if you disagree with that, I'd love to have that conversation with you. But why does Jesus put an exception clause in there? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb here. Okay, I know Jesus is God. I believe Jesus is God. And Jesus and God see everything and know everything. And the Bible has all the answers that we need for all the questions. But sometimes the questions are harder to find than others. I do believe that because Jesus is addressing is addressing events of the people he's talking to at the time. Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount, or in chapter 19, he's talking to some Pharisaic leaders, and they ask him a question. He's answering their question. Okay, so now I'm going to share a story. When I was pastoring a church several years ago, I had a woman come to me who was very distraught. Okay, for a counseling session. She came to my house, knocked on the door. She came in and she was just in tears and just disheveled and just upset. 
and, and, and I set her there in the living room. The door was open so that, you know, there was nothing inappropriate going on. But we sat there in the living room and we started talking. I said, what's going on? And she started sharing with me that she has been in this extremely abusive marriage for eight years. Where her husband, for a variety of reasons, okay, I'm not going to get into that, but her husband was abusing her, physically abusing her and emotionally and uh, mentally abusing her. Just calling her all kinds of names, demeaning attitude towards just telling her what a loser she is, how ugly she is, and all this kind of stuff. And then he was also hitting her and and other things. I won't go into those kind of details, but he was abusing her severely. As a matter of fact, this day that she came to the house, he had she had escaped him beating on her and ran into the car and drove off and came to my house. I fully expected him to show up at any time that we were talking, but he did not, thankfully. Um, but, but she and I were talking and she said, preacher, I really, really am scared for my life. I'm scared that he's going to lose it. And one day he's going to kill me, but it's a sin to get a divorce. And I don't want to sin. The Bible says that you can only divorce if he's cheating on me. And I don't believe, I don't think he's cheating on me. If he has, I'm not aware of it, but I know that he is beating me. I know that my life is in danger, and I am scared to death. What am I supposed to do? And you know, in that moment, as a pastor who's talking to a parishioner who is talking to a parishioner who is for in fear of her life, this was legitimate. She had bruises. She had hand marks on her face. She she was obviously in a very abusive situation. And I was trying to counsel her, counsel her and comfort her at the same time. And I said to her, I don't remember it verbatim, but I said to her something like this. I said, uh, and I'll just call her um, Sarah. I'll just call her Sarah. I said, Sarah, do you really think God wants you to live in fear? Do you really think that God wants you to be scared that you're going to die at the hand of your husband. Do you think God wants you to be in a situation where your life is in danger? And she just sat there and shook her head. I said, well, let me put it to you like this. What if it wasn't your husband? Would you be in that situation? She said, absolutely not. I said, what if this was your employer? You know, where you signed a contract and you're going to work. And your employer starts doing this to you. She said, I'd quit in a minute. I said, well, you're not quitting. You're saving yourself. In this situation, you're saving yourself. The Bible doesn't talk about abuse as a reason to get a divorce. The Bible doesn't talk about drunkenness as a reason to get a divorce. The Bible doesn't talk about uh, chronic unemployment as a reason to get a divorce. The Bible doesn't talk about methamphetamine drug addiction as a reason to get a divorce. It doesn't talk about being incarcerated for long periods of time as a reason to get a divorce. It doesn't talk about someone who just says, you know what, I don't want to be married to you anymore. And they just leave. Or someone who says, uh, as a friend of mine um, had happened to her, her husband one day said, you know what, I'm tired of this. And left her for another man. The Bible doesn't talk about that. That could fall under sexual immorality, but but the but the issue is the same. It's not very specific. 
And so I said to her, I said, Sarah, I believe God wants you to be safe. I believe God wants you to take care of yourself and to get out of a very dangerous situation. I think you should pray about it. I think you should you should make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons. If there's no way that, that your husband's going to get help for his anger issues, if there's no way that he's going to recognize that he even has an issue, then we need to talk about ways where you can be safe and protected. Long story short, a few weeks later, she ended up leaving her husband and going to a safe place, and uh, they ended up getting a divorce and went their separate ways. Okay, there was no retribution or retaliation on the husband's part. I think he was relieved just as much as she was. But either way, she was able to get out of the situation. And I do not believe that while even though the Bible does not say anything clearly or specifically about abuse as a reason for divorce, in my heart of hearts, I believe that God is a God of love and God is a God of grace and God is a God of empathy and sympathy and that God wants nothing but the best for his children. And if we are in situations where we are in danger, where we are afraid, where we are, uh, where our lives are, are literally at risk, that I believe God wants us to protect ourselves. You know, this could really tie in very well with the episode 79 when we talked about self-defense and and we have a mandate in the Bible to defend ourselves and those who can't defend themselves. And I believe that this could fall under that category very easily. Um, That, sure, I believe that, that Sarah was completely justified in getting that divorce. I don't believe that she is held accountable for that. I believe that all divorce is sin, okay? I believe that all divorce is sin, but that sin is forgivable. God, through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, can forgive us of our sin. If we seek, if we ask him for it and we seek it, he is righteous and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And once we are clean, we are clean. That sin is gone and it is forgotten. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about here in just a minute is that if God can forgive us, why can't the church? I'm going to let that question linger for a minute. I'm going to ask it again. If God can forgive us, why can't the church? Now, there are consequences to sin. We recognize that. There are consequences to sin. Sometimes those consequences last for decades. Um, they can last for weeks, years, months, decades, or even the rest of our life in, in, in some situations. As we talked about last week in the uh, Christian view of capital punishment, that there's consequences to your sin. You can be forgiven, be saved, be, be cleansed of your sin, but there's still consequences. And does that apply to a divorce, though? Um, there's a very interesting, interesting slant to it. So... If divorce is a sin, where is the sin? Is it in the act of of filing for divorce? Is it in the act of getting married to the wrong person in the first place? Is it even clear what the sin is? Is it, I mean, are you really abandoning your covenant if you're trying to save your life because the person you're married to has become violent? They They were not violent when you married them. Maybe they were not an alcoholic when you married them. Maybe they were not um, um, dangerous when you married them. But through trials of life and circumstances, they became addicted to 
alcohol. They became addicted to methamphetamines. They became violent after you're in the marriage. You know, one year, two years, five years, 20 years later, it becomes apparent that the person you married is not the person that you're married to and that you are in a dangerous or a life-changing situation and you need to do something different. How do you respond to that? So let's look at, at um, some other verses in the Scripture that pertain, in the New Testament specifically, that pertain to divorce. We're going to Paul now, the Apostle Paul, and he really muddies the water here. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. And um, Paul says this, To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Stop right there for a second. Notice here, Paul gives the authority to a woman divorce a man. First time it's been in Scripture. As we said earlier, every other time in Scripture, only the man could issue a certificate of divorce. But here Paul says that she must not divorce him if he's an unbeliever but willing to live with him. But I want you to notice chapter, oh, excuse me, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been dignified to the wife. I'm sorry, I'm going to jump to verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances because God has called us to live in peace. Notice that verse 15. That is huge. That is huge. This can also go to the verses about being unequally yoked, which is really what this is about in a, in a, in a different version. If you are unequally yoked, if you are married to an unbeliever, let's say that, let's say, for example, that Two, two young people get married, and they've been raised in church, but they're not really active in church, okay, which is very common when they're in their early 20s. And then they start going to church, or one of them feels the nudge to go back. The Holy Spirit is pulling them back to church, and they become saved. They become born again. They rededicate their life to Christ, and they are, they are all in the gospel. But their spouse is not. Their spouse is like, hey, you know, Sunday is for me to sleep in, read the Wall Street Journal, lay around and watch Lifetime movies all day, and just just relax. That's my Sunday. I am not going to church. It's full of a bunch of hypocrites, and, and it's, it is not for me. So now you hear a man who's, and I'm just using this example. It can go either way. You're married to someone who is not a believer. And yet you are fully vested in the church and you keep trying to get them to go with you. You keep trying to get them to, to understand the love that God has for them and the love that God has for you and so forth and so on. This goes on for weeks, months, years. And finally, the non-believing spouse says, I've had enough, I'm out. And they leave. According to Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. So it sounds like what Paul is saying, he's giving an exception clause just as Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Paul is giving an exception. If you're married to an unbeliever and they're willing to stay, then you got to stay with them and, and, and try to help them. But if you're married to an unbeliever and your unbeliever says, I'm out, I'm not going to be a part of this anymore, I don't want to be in this relationship, 
Paul says, let them go. Let them leave. You don't need to try to hang on. And that is an exception. So let me ask the question like this. If I'm married to a woman and that woman decides to leave, am I held responsible for the sin of divorce? Let's say that I, I want the marriage to work. Let's say that I'm doing everything I can to keep the marriage together, that I'm enduring all these things, whatever things are in marriage. And we all know that, that marriage can be difficult, that marriage can be hard, and that there are times we endure things for the spouse and, and that we uh, put up with things that drive us crazy just because we love that person and so forth. And that's fine. That's part of being married, okay? But let's just say one day, you know, the, the, the old country song is you came home and there was a note on the refrigerator. I'm out. I've had enough. I'm tired of being unhappy. I'm leaving. Um, there are so many stories, so many stories of people that I have listened to that were completely blindsided by their spouse leaving. One of my dearest friends, one of my dearest friends, his wife left him with an 18-month-old baby. She said, I don't want to be a mother. I don't want to be a wife. And boom, she just left. And he was left to raise the child on his own. And he did a remarkable job doing that. And he remarried and, and has a wonderful wife and, a, and, a, and another child. And, and life is good. But he was not, he had no clue that that was going to happen. You know, he thought that everything was fine in the marriage. Was it great? Probably not. But he thought it was fine, as most marriages are. And then all of a sudden, she says, I don't want to be married anymore. I don't want to be married, and I don't want to be a mother. And she left. I got dozens of examples like that. I also have dozens of examples of men who said, you know what? I, I'm just tired of this. And they just leave. So if that woman remarries, is she really committing adultery? Well, if you read what Jesus said, then she is. If you read what Paul says, then she's not. So you see how confusing this can be? And I think this is where the church, this is my personal opinion, this is where the church, the Christian church has failed. Okay? It has failed these people that are, that are impacted by divorce. It has failed the people who were hurt and devastated because of divorce, because we have not, we being the church, the Christian church has not spent in, now this again, this is my opinion, the Christian church has not done a good job ministering to the divorced people of our society. 50% or more of our congregations are directly or indirectly affected by divorce. 50%. I would say it's higher than that, depending on, I'm sure it's geographical, depending on where you live. But I would say it's higher than that, that, you know, either they have been divorced, their parents have been divorced, or their children have been divorced, or all three, or any combination of those. So they have been impacted by divorce. A significant number of the congregants have been impacted by divorce. And the church, it's like it's the new scarlet letter. The big D on your chest is the new scarlet letter. I mean, let's look at it. We know people that have participated in adultery still hold leadership roles in churches. 
deacons who have been adulterers are still elected to the deacons, to the deacon board or the elder board, whatever your church is. People who have had addiction problems have still been elected to the church councils and have become pastors. People who have been incarcerated for horrific crimes, served their time and gotten out, can be ordained in most denominations and serve. People who have cheated on their wives on numerous occasions but have retained that marriage for whatever reason can still be ordained as pastors, can still be on the elder board or deacon board. But... If you have the scarlet letter of a D for divorced, then denominations all across the board exclude you for any role of leadership. But what if the divorce happened 30 years ago? What if you got married as a, as a late teen, early college student? You know, you were madly in love and you got married and 18 months later you realize, you know what, we were just young and dumb and we shouldn't have done this. And you go your separate ways. Everybody's, everybody's, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, they get along. Everybody's fine with it. You said, we just were young and made a bad decision. Why is that the unforgivable sin? What if you got married when you were, you know, right, up, right out of college or high school, and four or five years later, six years later, your spouse says, I don't want to be married anymore, and they just leave? Why are you being punished because your wife walked out? These are questions that I've never been able to have answered when I ask people about it. Some of the largest denominations in our country, you know, um, will not allow men who've been divorced to become pastors. At least that's what they say. But if you have a television ministry, we'll make an exception. If you have a big steeple, we'll make an exception. But if they're going to make exceptions for certain people, shouldn't they all be on a case-by-case basis? Shouldn't they all be on a, well, let's ask why were you divorced? When were you divorced? What were the reasons behind your divorce? Not just a blanket statement. If you're divorced, you can no longer be a deacon. 45 years ago, my sister had been married before, right? Teenage wedding, you know, young, dumb. She got married. It didn't last long, a year and a half, two years, something like that, and she got divorced. And she met a, a very fine man, my, my brother-in-law, who's been on this podcast. They've been married 45 years. When he fell in love with my sister and they got married, he was forced to resign as a deacon of his church because he married a woman who had been married before. I find that very bizarre. That's just me. I know I'm a little biased because it's my sister, my brother-in-law, but they've been married 45 years, and he is still ineligible to become a deacon or elder. That makes no sense to me. It makes no sense to me. I believe it should be on a case-by-case basis. But now, let's get into why this is so. Okay, why do churches put a scarlet D on their leadership? So it's 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. That's where they're going to. All right, so I want to read first, excuse me, I want to read 1 Timothy chapter 3. And the King James Version puts it like this. He says that you must be a husband of one wife. 
The NIV says you must be faithful to your wife. Other translations use it the same way. I mean, so Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, when it's listing the qualifications to be an overseer or a bishop or a leader, an elder of the church, says you must be a husband of one wife. But notice the language here. This is very, very important. I really want you to pay attention to this. Notice the language here. Why doesn't Paul use the word divorce if he means divorce? Okay, there's a lot of confusion in this statement, right? Some schools of thought and many theologians disagree on the language here. What is meant by husband of one wife? If Paul is referring to divorce, why is he not using the word divorced? He doesn't say you must be, you must not be divorced. He says a husband of one wife or a faithful to your wife. So does, maybe he doesn't mean divorce when he says husband of one wife. Maybe he means something else. Many denominations, as I said earlier, and churches believe this to mean that the leader cannot be divorced. But theologians are quick to point out this. People who study this, who are much smarter than me, point to the early practice of polygamy. Now, hang on with me here. Anytime the term polygamy comes up, people switch off and they start thinking about the Mormons. They start thinking about stuff like that. But this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about early Christianity, first century stuff here. Christians in the beginning were really Jewish people who converted to Christianity, but they were Jewish by, by race, and they were, that's why they're called Judeo-Christians. The practice of polygamy was common. Actually, there are many scriptures that say that men were supposed to take other wives if they could afford it. If they could support them because women were not allowed to work. Women were not allowed to support themselves financially. How was a woman supposed to be taken care of? Jesus talks about widows and orphans and things of that nature. He's talking about people who cannot support themselves. It was in the law, or it is in the law, that if your brother dies, then it's your responsibility, if you're a man, and your brother dies, it's your responsibility to take his wife in as your wife and to support her and his children. That would be polygamy. You have more than one wife. We're not going to break it down into the duties of these different roles, but the, the truth of the matter is, is that polygamy was not only practiced, it was encouraged under most circumstances. So if the scripture in 1 Timothy and Titus does it really refer to divorced people or is it referring to polygamy? Having more than one wife. You're supposed, he says, that, uh, that, let me go back and read it again, a husband of one wife or faithful to his wife. Husband of one wife. I think what Paul is saying here, and many other theologians agree with me on this, that what Paul is saying here, he doesn't use the word divorce on purpose because he doesn't mean divorced. When he says a husband of one wife, he means a one wife at a time. Because you cannot devote yourself, you cannot devote yourself to the work of the church if you are being um, distracted, if you will, by more by the responsibility of taking care of more than one wife and those other children. The responsibilities of the church are so big and so important. I don't want you to be so distracted. 
so that you are have more than one wife to keep you busy, occupied, and working more to support, because that is now your job. If Paul is referring to polygamy and not divorce, then why doesn't the churches allow pastors who have suffered the pain of divorce to serve as pastors? Why don't churches allow men to serve as deacons and elders if they have been divorced? I believe it should be on a case-by-case basis. I'm going to give a couple of examples here. I personally believe that we are doing a disservice to the church, we're doing a disservice to people, and we're doing a disservice to the gospel by throwing out a blanket statement and say, well, Timothy says husband of one wife, so that means you can't be divorced and serve as an elder or a deacon. But let's look at it like this. 50% of our congregations are impacted by divorce, greater than 50%, I believe. But the numbers say that around 50% of all marriages end in divorce. If you're serving a country church or a small town church with 150 members, which is, by the way, the average church size in America is 150 members, okay? So most churches are that size or smaller. 50% of your congregation is impacted by divorce. How are you going to even get a deacon board or an elder board? How are you going to get a church council if we eliminate everyone who's been divorced or impacted by divorce? Okay, say, say the man has not been divorced, but he married a woman who has been. Well, if he's committing adultery, according to your theology, by being married to her, then is he ineligible for um, deaconship? My brother-in-law was and still is. If you've been married before, then you're not then you're not eligible to be on the deacon board, the church council, whatever whatever your denomination calls it, or whatever your church calls it. So why are we eliminating these people? If you've been divorced or remarried or married for forty five years, and you're still ineligible, what that says to me is that God can forgive you, but the church can't. What that says to me is that God can forgive us of sin, but we're going to hold on to this sin. That we're going to hold on to this and say, you are not eligible because you, are, because you have sinned, because you have a divorce. What if I got divorced and never remarried? My sin stays with me according to the church. God forgives me. God has cleansed me. God has purified me. The sin is gone, forgotten. It's like it never existed. But the church puts that scarlet D on our chest and says, you've been divorced, Pete. You cannot serve in a leadership role in this church. I find that shocking and I find it amazing, but it is so prevalent. How many churches will not hire a divorced man as a pastor, but will hire someone who has a criminal record? Actually, I know churches and denominations that herald People that say, well, you know what? They committed a crime. They went and served their 15 years behind jail. They are, they are a converted convict, and they're serving as pastor. But here's a person who was married for three years when they were in their 20s, realized it was a bad situation, got out, and they can't even serve as a Sunday school teacher in some churches because they've been divorced. But a convicted felon can. Why is the divorce the unforgivable sin. 
If sin can be forgiven and washed clean by the love of Christ and by the sacrifice on the cross, why does the church hold on to it as a litmus test for qualifications? Let me ask this. If First Timothy, if in First Timothy, Paul says that a leader should be the husband of one wife and the church holds on to this like it's a raft of the sea, why does the church hold on to that? Because there are many other things that Paul says that we ignore. There are many other things that Paul says that we're supposed to do that we ignore. What about 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul says women can't come to church without their head covered? We don't force women to wear hats when they come to church. We don't require it as a litmus test. So why are we cherry picking the scriptures? Why are we saying this is relevant today, but that's not? Why do we say that, well, women wearing hats in church, that was really a first century thing. Let's think about who Paul was writing to then. He was writing to the church of Corinth, and there were women who were stepping out of line, and so he's trying to put them back in line, blah, blah, blah. But we don't say that in, when he's talking about chapter 7 of Corinthians, when he says, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in First Timothy, when he says they're a husband of one wife. But was he talking about first century people who polygamy was prevalent and he didn't want us to be practicing polygamy and to be leadership? There are many things in the New Testament that the church has decided are not accurate or relevant today. Paul talks extensively about how we're supposed to treat slaves. The church has decided that slavery is not good, and it's not. I mean, that goes without saying. But the church has decided, well, you know what? That was a different time period. That's not relevant today, so we're just going to ignore that. What do we do with these verses? Why do we disregard those verses but not the ones about uh, being divorced or a husband of one wife? Why do we pick and choose to hang all of our theology on that verse and ignore these others? So this is the, so this is the question. What exactly does the verse in 1 Timothy and Titus referring to? Is Paul referring to divorce? And if so, why doesn't he use the word divorce? Why doesn't he say it clearly? Or is Paul referring to polygamy? Husband of one wife, isn't he referring to polygamy? How can a man control God's house when he cannot control his own? Is divorce the unforgivable sin of the church? It seems like it is. Because churches are so quick to point to that one thing to dismiss men as pastors, to dismiss men as elders or deacons, to dismiss women as Sunday school teachers or as church council members. Because of divorce. But let me offer you this. If a man is married to his wife and his wife is unfaithful and leaves him, why does this disqualify him as a pastor? If a man is married to an unbeliever and she leaves him, why does this disqualify him as a pastor, a deacon, or an elder? Paul says, if, she, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. So why does it disqualify him? If a man is married in life and the marriage dissolves and later he remarried and is called into ministry later in life, why does his previous marriage disqualify him? Why is there this double standard? Let me be clear. 
Divorce is a sin. I believe that, plain and simple. But it is, but it is not an unforgivable sin. It is not something that will keep you from, from, from the glories of heaven. All sin can be forgiven through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for all sin, for all people. He died for my sin. He died for your sin. He died for the sin that I have in divorce and the sin that you have in divorce. And I have been cleansed of that, and you have been cleansed of that. No one wins in a divorce situation. It is a horrible event. But if God's grace is able to forgive us, why doesn't the church forgive us? If God's grace is sufficient and we are repentant, why doesn't church continue? Why does the church continue to close doors on those who have suffered this fate? Perhaps there are reasons, legitimate reasons, to exclude men from leadership roles if they're divorced. But again, again, it should be a case by case basis. I believe the church should look at each case individually instead of just blanket statement. If you're divorced, you're not going to be considered for this position. Instead of bringing in Brother Jim and say, Jim. We know that you went through divorce 15 years ago. Do you mind sharing? I know it's a painful topic. I know it's something that's a long time ago. But do you mind sharing with us what happened so that we can understand? I think it should be considered on a case-by-case basis before you exclude them from, from leadership roles. I want to say this, too, to all the divorced people out there that are listening to this. Because I believe that there are many divorced people listening to this because 50% of the population is divorced. I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this very clearly. God loves you. God forgives you if you ask for if you ask God to forgive you for the sin that caused the divorce or that or the sin of divorce, God will forgive you for that. Your sin is not a life sentence. Your divorce is not a life sentence. There is grace on the other side. The darkness you feel now, it will subside and you will overcome. God is with you. The Holy Spirit is with you. You are not alone. And I want you to hear this very clearly as well. If you need to talk, if you're going through a divorce right now and you feel the pain and the, and the loneliness and the despair that you're going through, Email me at Pete at ChristianOutdoors.org. I will love to talk with you. I am available to talk with you through this. I'm available to pray for you. Reach out to me, Pete at ChristianOutdoors.org, because there is hope for you. There is life on the other side of divorce. There is grace on the other side of divorce. There is joy on the other side of divorce. I want to be completely transparent here. I was divorced 24 years ago, and I have been married to my wife, Susan, my wonderful wife, Susan, for 23 years. We have three wonderful children together. But it is God's grace and God's faithfulness and his love that saw me through all that. You will get through this if you're going through it now. And there are great things on the other side. God's grace is sufficient. And I pray that, that the church soon, the church, the Protestant church in America and the, and the Catholic church as well, will realize the pain they are causing to people who have suffered through divorce. And they will stop punishing them further 
Divorce is enough punishment. It never leaves. Like I said, I was divorced 24 years ago. The pain of that never leaves. It is always there. Yes, I'm healed from it. Yes, I'm forgiven. Yes, I found love in someone who loves me, and I am extremely happy in my marriage now and in the life I have, and I am thankful to God that God brought Susan to my life after the divorce, and she helped me through all this, and God helped me through this, I am extremely grateful for that. But I want you to know, if you're going through it, that God is good, God is faithful, His love and His grace are sh- are true and sure and everlasting, and He loves you and, and, and forgives you and wants nothing but a relationship with you. Don't turn your back on God because your marriage failed. Reach out to Him. He is there. And again, if you need to talk, you can email me at Pete at Christianoutdoors.org. I would be glad to to, uh, talk to you via email. We can set up a time to talk over the phone. Whatever you need, I'm available for you. So in conclusion, from the Christian perspective on on what does the Bible say about divorce, the Bible says a lot about it, and it can be very confusing. But at the end of the day, what I want you to know is it's not an unforgivable sin. That sin is sin, and God hates sin, but God loves the sinners. And God wants you to be cleansed of your sin. God wants you to be healed of your sin. God wants you to be restored and to know that you can be forgiven and that his grace is sufficient. And this is the great thing about God, among others. There are many great things about God. But one of the great things about God is when he forgives you, it is done. It is over. It is forgotten. You are, as, as uh, I think it's in Romans, it says that we are cleansed whiter than snow. Our slate is clean. The, the, the file is emptied. The shredder has shredded all the documents. It is no more. And God gives us a clean slate where we can start over. And sometimes that start over means that we find somebody else and we get remarried and we enjoy life the way God intended it to be. So that's going to wrap up this episode of Christian Outdoors Podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope this was helpful. I hope you can benefit from this. Please tell others about it. Continue to pray for us as we continue to strive to talk about things outdoors, but also how we can enjoy God every day. Thank you for listening, and God bless.